This is the PR Pod, the podcast that brings you expert tips for working in PR and finding your niche. With your host, Brooke Burns. Welcome to the PR Pod, the essential podcast for emerging public relations professionals. This episode, I'm joined by Nicole Smith, Senior Global Communications Officer at International Rescue Committee in New York. Nicole has more than 15 years of international communications experience and specialises in developing programs that amplify the voices of women around the world. One of Nicole's many responsibilities is to translate complex technical information and data from humanitarian efforts in 40 countries into external facing communications materials. She joins me today to provide you some insight into how you can do this for your clients and brands. Nicole, welcome to the PR Pod. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So your job sounds fascinating. Can you give me a little bit more information on the International Rescue Committee, what it does and some background on your role? Sure. So the International Rescue Committee was founded really by uh, this idea from Albert Einstein following World War II that people fleeing from violence and persecution should have the opportunity to rebuild and recover their lives in new communities. So it focuses on helping refugees and displaced people around the world within 40 countries, as well as here within the United States in about um, more than a dozen cities. And so... In my role, we obviously have a lot of complex technical programs that we're running in in various different settings. Uh, We work within four main areas. So healthcare, a a big one right now is how do we make sure healthcare systems are strong enough to deliver COVID-19 vaccines around the world. Education, so recognizing that a lot of children who are fleeing their homeland don't have access to education the way that we think about it in the Western context. So what is that, what does remote learning look like in a refugee camp, for example? Um, Violence protection and um, response, which is everything from domestic violence to child abuse to recognizing the violence that can occur from traumatic situations. And then of course, economic empowerment. So how are people finding ways to make money in their new countries and how are they getting access to bank accounts and all of the little things that we know that makes our job. And then, of course, uh, through all of that is gender equality. So recognizing within each of these areas that gender is um, you know, something that can discriminate, something that can make it harder for women to achieve some of these goals. So how do we make sure that we are Uh, providing solutions for their unique experiences. And my role is to make everybody understand what that actually means (laughs) in a way that, um, you know, compels them to take action, whether that's policymakers who are looking to uh, open up more access for refugees or everyday donors who want to contribute to helping us in our efforts. And these are all such powerful and important issues. Where does the prioritization of what is the focus at the moment, what couple of issues are the focus for this quarter or half or however, however you manage to, uh, to, to prioritize that? How do you get to that point? Yeah, it's tough, um, especially with, as you probably know, just the quick way that the news cycle changes right now. You know, you, you think one thing will be interesting and then, you know, the next moment the news cycle is completely changed. So I think there's kind of two different streams. So we have our, you know, emergency response kind of reactive effort. So if something terrible happens within Syria, for example, coming up on the 10 year anniversary of the Syrian war, that's something that we'll, you know, do on a a newsworthy basis. But a lot of the stuff that I work on is 
is less of that newsworthiness because it's programs that we've had maybe running for a year or um, you know a couple of months at least, and obviously the news cycle has changed. So how are we, you know, inserting it into the um, newscape? I would say that um, as horrible as COVID nineteen is, it has provided people with a sense of understanding as to what it means to be looking for a job, being displaced, um, struggling with getting access to healthcare, worrying about a vaccine. So I think under that guise, it has opened us up to more opportunities where we are able to insert ourselves into conversations that previously probably would have been a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I imagine people are far more empathetic to the, the causes and the messages right now. Yeah, and, and journalists in particular, because since COVID-19 is a global pandemic. It doesn't know borders. So uh, it's it's not only, um, you know, the fact that refugees and displaced people are mobile populations. So you need to have them included in vaccine efforts, for example, because if they're not, then the spread will continue. So I think it's, it's also from, you know, an empathy perspective, but also a, a public health perspective as well. Mm. I feel like I'd spend hours just talking to you about your job and what you do, but I really want to make sure we're focusing on the um, on how you can create compelling content from the technical data. So why is data so important to the work that you do and what does it allow you to do? Yeah, so when we think about the humanitarian space and you look at what gets put out there, it's very much this notion of, you know, you know, help people uh, get involved, this, this very... Um, compelling uh, imagery around like helping people around the world. And so how do you stand out among other organizations? You know, the United Nations, for example. Uh, and to do that, you have data. That's that's one way to obviously do it. And so for us, it also helps set the picture of a situation. So if we're saying, uh, you know, X percent of women experience gender-based violence in 2020 that we can correlate to uh, COVID-19, it makes us uh, bring to the forefront the need to pay attention to this issue. So it not only sets us apart and gives us a number that journalists likes to hang on to, but it also um, helps set the context for what we, the story we want to tell. And where does your data come from? Is it something that is commissioned by the IRC? Do you collate it from other sources? Mm -hmm. It depends. First and foremost, we'd like to use our own because that helps us be unique and has something that nobody else has. I would say it can be difficult because the people who are working on the ground are not inputting data on, you know, the basis that somebody just sitting in, you know, a banking institution might be doing. So it kind of comes and goes when you might have access to it. There also might be sensitivities around what you share based on the government you're working within. You know, for example, if you're working in a certain country and you say, you know, some, you reveal some terrible numbers about the government, they're not really going to want you in there providing services to the people that you work with. So when we can use our own data, we do. Um, and when we don't, um, we look towards kind of more of those uh, secondary sources. But again, you know, it's very hard for us um, to, you know, quote somebody like the UN or the World Bank because that that makes it harder for us to get into the conversation, so to speak. So whenever we can have our unique data, the better. And I imagine there's so much information to sift through. And like you said, there's obviously some messaging or there's some information that um, may be sensitive or not appropriate to release at any one time. How many 
how does that review process happen, I guess, from a communications perspective? I imagine there's lots of different arms of the IRC that, re that require that data for different reasons, but from the communication side of things, how many people would be going through that information? Oof. So that depends on which area we want to work in. Um, there are more, there are certain people, obviously, who, you know, most people know if they work in PR are more comms friendly than others and see the benefit of getting their story out there and maybe, you know, peeking behind the hood a little bit as, as to how this all works. Um, so it really depends. I would also say data requests take time. So when you're building into PR plans or thinking through, big moments coming up, make the request as far ahead of time as possible. So for example, uh, International Women's Day is coming up here and big moment for us within the gender equality space, obviously. And we started having conversations in December around what type of data we could be collecting just so we would have enough time. We could play out a couple of ideas so that uh, you know, the other risk you run is if something you run the data, but it's not super interesting, um, that doesn't help you either. So as much time that you can give yourself, the better. Yeah. And I imagine sometimes um, information comes through and you're very reactive to, wow, that's a really powerful um, collection of data. I, this is how I can leverage that. And other times, perhaps you're approaching it from the perspective of having an idea and a message in, in mind and trying to find some correlating data that supports that. Um, how how often are you being reactive and proactive with how you utilize data? That's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things. So first is if we're doing a, a longer term product project, we know that we'll see the data over time. So that's much more proactive and coming up with the indicators that we want to share. You know, how many people did we help find employment? How do we increase people's income? Those are ones that we know we can work towards measuring. But for something where we're almost trying to reverse engineer uh, some numbers to put our point together. So for example, um, it's we're coming up on the one year anniversary already as to when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. And for that, we really wanted to bring awareness to the fact that people in conflict and crisis affected countries probably won't have vaccines until you know 2022 for the most part. Um, and that's because of uh, you know, vaccine hoarding that's going on, lack of funding, etc. And so in this instance, we obviously didn't have a firm number. So what we did was we got really creative with the math and we looked at the amount of doses that countries such as the US, the UK, Canada have right now. And then we did some, you know, some crazy math, like I said, to figure out, okay, well, how much of those excess doses could cover all of these other countries who currently have zero doses? So I would say that's a good example of like having to come up with something uh, in the moment. So I think it's always just getting creative with the sources that you have available, but also the news hooks and looking at, uh, you know, if something's being covered, for example, I've seen a bunch of times how Low-income countries don't won't have access to vaccines, or refugees won't be able to have access to vaccines. But there really hasn't been a lot of uh, quantification around that. So that's an area that we can fill with, you know, looking at different sources that are third party. Mm. And I guess in terms of distilling the information, I imagine there's times when you're looking through something and there's so many powerful pieces of data that come from that, and you have to prioritize what you release and where you release it. Um, how you release it, what channels are you going to utilize? How, how does that kind of strategy come into it in terms of creating that content and then communicating that content? 
Yeah, so a lot of the reports and data that come my way are super technical. Um, and that's a big part of my job and is to make them relatable to the everyday person. And these reports and the data is being compiled either for, you know, obviously our own tracking purposes, but also for international donors and people who are funding the project. So they have different metrics as well. And a lot of times I will get reports that are 40 pages and I will have to read through them and figure out what is the most interesting, um, which is something I'm actually doing right now. We have this really interesting paper around discrimination of LGBTQI plus uh, populations within humanitarian context. Super interesting topic that is not really discussed, but I have a 40-page report and I don't have, you know, I just have, um, you know, interviews with various clients. I don't have those full, like, what's the headline? So I think it's recognizing that you're not working with people who are writing for media, they're writing for a different audience. So quite frankly, it just takes time to sift through this material. I take a highlighter and I start highlighting what is actually um, compelling or unique. Um, and then I, I kind of will put that into just an ongoing document and see see where it gets me. But yet, I, I haven't come up with a quick and easy way yet to distill <laughs> some of these materials, but... Um, if I find one, I'll definitely let people know. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you looking for in the data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a couple of things. I'm always looking for what could be like that headline figure. Um, you know, a good, a good example of this was, um, like I said, around gender-based violence. So we saw that in the majority of African countries where there are refugees and displaced populations, 73% of women experience gender-based violence in 2020. So when you take a moment and you think about that, that is a very compelling figure. So I'm looking for numbers that I can see an editor putting as the headline of a story, or I'm looking for uh, supporting points or things that I haven't seen covered before. Um, so let me think of an... I think I'm an example of that. Um, oh, so, okay, a good example of, uh, you know, thinking through a unique angle to put into current conversations with data was something we found around immunization. So recognizing that the global conversation is around COVID-19 vaccines. Well, what about everyday vaccination? So uh, measles, polio, recognizing that these are life-saving vaccines that also need to happen. So pulling data that can support current stories, but also, you know, give it that unique spin to it has also been uh, something that's worked really well. So once you've gone through that process of literally highlighting, distilling information out, and I guess just collating all the key points you think may, may be relevant or useful, what's the, what's your next stage after that? So with that, it depends on a couple of things. One, you know, what is the timing that we have to work with? So is there something newsworthy we can tie it to? So with all of um, the you know health stuff going on, World Health Day is coming up in April. So is there something that we can align what we're working on towards that we know media will already be covering? So that's kind of the first step. And then I'll think through, well, what would be the most impactful way to package this up? I tend to not love press releases. Um, to be quite honest, it's something that I didn't do before I joined this position. They were kind of banned within the corporate space, something that they only did for um, like government regulation purposes on, on some things. Um, so 
I, I'm not a fan of press releases and just blasting it out there. Um, I, I like looking for different things. So some of the things that I've done that reporters have actually jumped on has been something called a white paper. It's like three pages in a nicely designed PDF at you know no extra cost. And it will lay out your key bullets and then just give some context and a couple of supporting quotes. So instead of it being you know this traditional press release, it's visual, it's packaged up in a way that tells a story, um, and it lends itself more to conversation versus like cover me right now. Because I think the trying to get people to cover you right now, this moment is getting increasingly more difficult with just everything that's going on. So how do you open it up into a new conversation? I also work very closely with my social and digital team. So how can we show uh, these stats with really compelling photos that we have of our clients to put a face to what we're actually talking about? Because that always works well too. And I imagine that, well, I I mean, I think it might be a a challenging part of your job, but maybe it's not that challenging because I'm not really aware of the resources you have, but you mentioned a good point in in having imagery to accompany it. It's like any, like any store, you need some compelling imagery. How do you source imagery that um, complements the messaging that you're trying to put out there? Yeah, so this is where we get really creative because working at a nonprofit, I'm I'm pretty much a one man show in my lane. You know, I don't have access to an agency. I don't have access to uh, you know additional resources or a dedicated budget. It's how do we get creative with what we're already doing, kind of across the board. So. To that regard, we do have content trips that our uh, digital teams go on on a a quarterly basis. They're usually funded by donors. So how do we add on to some of those trips? So for example, we already know that somebody, uh, a photographer is being sent to Ethiopia to capture footage of you know what's going on right now with the current um, you know displacement happening there. How can we add on to that um, women and girls specific photography and questions, which is what I did for International Women's Day. So I think it's finding areas where you're already gathering content and feeding yourself in. Um, that's been a good beneficial strategy. We also are very well organized as far as having a content library. So we've captured um, all the images that we've captured over the years are very well organized in something called a brand folder. So I can search for women's economic empowerment and I can find photos of women, um, you know, working or, or learning skills. So while not always, you know, about the specific thing that I'm pitching, I can always find something of somebody in a region or working within uh, the type of space that I want to highlight. But um, the more that you can combine with your colleagues, the better. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. When it comes to disseminating content, you've talked about white papers. I imagine social media is quite powerful as well because obviously it connects you directly to the consumer versus, you know, having the intermediary, intermediary of the media. Are there times when you decide that social media is the primary source of disseminating information? And if so, what comes into that decision-making process? Sure. So I think overall, I'll use the PR buzzword of we always want to have an integrated campaign. Um, (laughs) So if I'm doing something on the media side, I want to make sure that my social colleagues are supported and have access to what they need to make it a really robust campaign. And that goes for our owned content on our website, um, know, knowing that we also do fundraising, how do we get it incorporated into emails that are going out to current supporters and, and donors. Um, 
So that's always the goal, obviously not always realistic. I think where we've had success in doing things well on social and doing things quickly are around more of those reactionary things. So in the past where you'd probably like whip out a press release or a statement about some sort of issue that you're seeing, now we we tend to do that more on social media. Um, And we utilize our CEO's voice um, quite prominently when it comes to kind of the higher level issues. And then uh, we also use it whenever we see an event going on that we want to comment about, um, an article that's written that amplifies our message or what we've been trying to say. And then, of course, um, we also use it just for that part of that integrated campaign, that ongoing storytelling that we have. But I think, to be honest, it's been the best medium for just doing things quickly and getting us into current and trending conversations. And what do you have to think about when it comes to tweaking your messaging to make sure using language that's appropriate to digital platforms versus, you know, uh, going via media, for example? Mm -hmm. We have a fantastic um, woman in charge of our social handles, and she makes it very clear that uh, they're used for consumer purposes, which, quite frankly, has been so helpful. I know that People who work at organizations, who work in communications, probably have a ton of people coming to them saying, can't we just tweet about this? Can't we just put this on our social handles? So having those very clear guidelines as to actually what our channels are used for has been really critical in kind of setting those expectations and get us getting us what we need. Um, it also helps that we know that what we're going to be putting out there has to be short. So you can't have all of these descriptors or things that need to be explained. You need to be making it pretty simple. Um, and then, yeah, I, I would just uh, add that the ability to have internally a quick approval team. So I know sometimes there's a lot of people who need to look at a tweet or a post or something that goes out on social media. So making sure that you streamline that process so that once the content is drafted, it's ready to get posted pretty quickly. Because the last thing you want is to be waiting on content that needs to be approved and you miss the whole, the whole point of jumping in quickly. And are you trying to balance between increasing awareness for a topic or an issue or a movement or a program and a call to action? Or is there a call to action always integrated into whatever it is you're you're trying to get out there? I think that's really tough for any organization. Um, and, And thinking about what is the primary takeaway that you want to do, I would say that it still varies on an individual level. When I think about myself, though, I try to paint the story picture. So, you know, I'm reading about an issue, I'm getting, you know, data or some sort of qualitative element of it. I'm understanding what, uh, what can be done at more of like a global national level. Um, You know, what do we want policymakers to do? What do we want certain governments to do? But then I think it's so important to always include how can the individual get involved? Because otherwise, people tend not to pay attention. You know, if you're talking about really big issues, such as COVID or con- I mean conflict and the Syrian war, 10-year anniversary of that, that's very hard to think how an individual can make an impact. So I think making sure that there is something there that gets people involved not only helps from a storytelling perspective, but also in having people share that content and take action and, and staying involved with the story. So I, I like to think of press releases or you know whatever type of uh, material we're putting out there is telling a story. It's like the beginning, middle, and end. And what do you think are the biggest challenges most people would face when they're converting technical data into content? And do you have any recommendations of how to navigate those challenges? 
Yeah, so there, this is a challenge that I face quite a bit because you have people on the technical side, and, and this goes for, I used to work in the technology sector, so you know, very technical information that people are very proud of that they think is, you know, the hottest thing to come forever, but it's, you know, a small app update or a very small tweak to a program that the normal person wouldn't recognize or, or let alone cover. So I think it's first, it's always setting expectations as to what could actually be possible from a meeting perspective, from a media perspective. And then it's also the language that we use. So it can be very difficult to, uh, convince other people that what you've written is not taking away from the technical greatness that they've just done. Whereas with technical things, people tend to use, you know, five, six words. You want to describe something in one to two words. So that can definitely be a battle and and finding a medium. What has helped me is saying we only have like three paragraphs. So like setting word limits. um, I do that a lot with op-eds. Obviously there is a, a word limit in general, but Um, I always say like, oh, we only want to put one page together. So that has helped. Um, And then I would also say it just comes to building the relationships at this point. Um, People who I work with know that I'm doing this to get them coverage, to bring awareness to their attention. I'm not doing this maliciously or to take away from any of their work. So building that trust is also really important to making sure that um, everybody's on board with what you're trying to accomplish. And for those who work in a sector or company, you've kind of touched on this a little bit here, where the data is really dry or doesn't have an obvious relatable component, how do you convert that content into something that's newsworthy or that connects with a target market? What advice would you have to, I mean, I guess it comes down to language, which you've always spoken about, to, to make sure that that is connecting with your target audience that you're trying to reach. But are there any other considerations? Yeah, I've seen, I, I don't think infographics help with getting media coverage. That's something that I consistently have seen. You know, people will spend tons of money on these beautiful infographics and they tell a great story, but then nobody will pick them up. Um, but what I have seen do well is imagery with, with some of these data points. And that can be used on your social channels, um, can also be used with a lot of what I would call like less traditional media. So if you're you're looking at, you know, more trade publications or anywhere that does a slideshow, that can really help too. Um, so yeah, just thinking about beyond the written materials, where you can try and bring some of these numbers to life. You can also use it through the voices of your customers or through the voices of your clients to, to help paint a picture. Because yeah, sometimes if you're just looking at a bunch of bullets with data points. I mean, people can lose interest pretty quickly with that too. So I would say it's not a, a one-stop shop as far as how you present all of this. You, you have to get creative and continue to tweak what works. Mm. And you mentioned integrated marketing campaign, which I think is such an important point. Um, and I'm not quite sure whether this happens in IRC, but certainly would happen um, in, you know, gazillions of companies around the world where you, the whole broader team outside of communications as well has some interesting, compelling data or a message and you're all fighting for how that's going to get communicated. You know, perhaps there's, you know, I certainly remember in the television days that, um, someone might want to announce something in in one form and someone wants to announce another form. So what recommendations do you have for people to manage that process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so integrated campaigns is something that I, I feel like that's been the mandate for like the past 10 years of my career at this point. Like whenever that term was coined, boom, it's been going. I would say it is a new thing in the nonprofit sector, particularly in where I work. We have a new 
chief marketing and mobilization officer who joined on board and she is really leading the charge around why integrated campaigns are so important and they are so important so that you know you don't have for one for one day i'll use international women's day as an example you don't have a message here about you know economic impairment another here about girls education like which one do you want to focus on and so what we've started to do which i know can be a, lo- a little uncomfortable for comms folks including myself is to have the person who's leading the campaign take on more of a project manager role so making sure that from the beginning you're holding a brainstorm where everyone's aligning on a theme so for example for International Women's Day, the theme that we aligned on was women, women's leadership and changing what the narrative is around who and who can be and who should be a leader. Women refugees are leaders. Women who are displaced are leaders. Um, and so by having that theme set at the beginning and approved by the higher ups, we then were able to make sure that everybody's tactics were aligning to that theme. I set the course of the meetings by saying, think of this as the Met Ball and I am Anna Wintour. If you are not on <laughs> theme, you are not getting in. Um, and to be honest, like that is working pretty well. Um, and we want to, I also think of it as like at the end of the day, if someone asks you, you know, your boss, some higher up or et cetera, what did you do for, for so-and-so moment? You can quickly tell them in two sentences what you did. Oh, we did a campaign focused around women's leadership. We had a new analysis that we put out. We did some great storytelling on social that featured women leaders and XX and X um, and you're done. You're not having to struggle with what, what you're doing. It also makes it a lot easier to measure, um, you know, because you're all marching to the same drum and you're directing people to the same, in, in our instance, um, uh, fundraising site. Okay. So to wrap up, what would be your top tips for those who need to convert technical data into compelling content? Oh, the first would be be patient. I mean, it's, it's a hard news cycle. It's hard to... Uh, you know, get a reporter's attention right now if you're not working within, I would say, COVID or racial justice or, um, you know, the Biden administration, some of these big overarching issues. So if you're working on something that doesn't fit into something that the news cycle is squarely focused on, just be patient because there will be there will be an opening. And, you know, rather than put something out right away, take your time and think, is there a better moment to put something out? Then I would say, uh, you know, think beyond the traditional. So rather than just saying, oh, we need to put this out in a press release or, um, you know, we need to put something on our website. How can you, of course, get creative with visuals? And again, that could be repurposing photos that you already have, Um, you know, whether you're talking about the speed of a computer or how people access healthcare. There's a visual way to show that. Um, and then, of course, you know, keep it short and keep it uh, understandable. Uh, you want to be able to tell your your parents or somebody on the street what you're actually working on in a way that they say, oh, wow, that's actually really interesting. So the more that you can simplify and question some of the terminology that you're putting in there, the better. And I guess, like you said, run it past family and friends. If, do they understand it? Do they understand what you're trying to communicate? Then that's a, a great benchmark. Yeah. I mean, my parents still, as as probably most of your listeners uh, are in a similar boat, my parents still don't really understand what I do. Why can't somebody else just call the media? Like, why do you have to do it for them? Um, It's it's like that office space joke about the customer service representative. And so for 
for me, they always understand when I send them an article or they send me something that I've written. So that's the most important part. They may not understand why I'm writing it or why an article wasn't written under my name, but but they're understanding the message. Yeah, I know. In my television days, I the most impactful thing I did was um, I was a unit publicist when I was working in London, and so my name would come up at the end of episodes as being the publicist for that show. And they were like, oh, she's in TV. She must be doing something important. Her name's on television now. <laughs> Okay, so if people are interested in working in nonprofits, what would your recommendation be? Sure. So I have a pretty non-traditional background in coming into this space, uh, but it actually is a background that is incredibly helpful and timely. So I spent most of my career in the corporate sector, and the nonprofit sector needs corporate partners more than ever. So I would say think about if you are not already in this space, what can you bring that you know the industry definitely needs? I would say above and beyond writing skills are the, are the biggest ones. So however you can share something that you've written and show that you get the industry, you get to the point, that's also beneficial, as well as just the media context. I would say that no matter where you work, if you have an ability to get media coverage, you're going to be highly valuable. So how you are able to do that um, and, and the benefit that you can add that's a little bit different, but also necessary for where the industry needs to go, they will definitely want you. Thank you so much for sharing your insight today, Nicole. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to find out more about the International Rescue Committee, head to their website, www.rescue.org. Thanks for listening to the PR Pod. For more expert tips on working in PR, head to www.theprpod.com.